We are on part seven of Defending the Faith series, Did Jesus Rise from the Dead? <clears throat> now, I, I, I'm, I'm pretty confident that everybody in this room understands the incredible importance of the answer to that question. Because if Jesus did not rise from the dead, as Paul says, our faith is meaningless. Our faith is worthless. There are lots of people that started religions that died. Buddha died. Muhammad died. All of the people who wrote the sacred books of, in Hinduism, they all were born, lived, wrote the books, and died. But if Jesus did what he did and died and didn't rise from the dead, as he said he would multiple times, then he's a liar. So if he didn't rise from the dead, as Paul says, our faith is worthless. And so it's incredibly important for us to be able to answer this question to anybody that asks us about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the cornerstone of our faith. Uh, Jesus dying on the cross is incredibly important. But if there is no resurrection, then there's no resurrection for us. So if Jesus, again, because he said multiple times that he would rise from the dead, if he didn't, then he's a liar. And so his death on the cross was worthless, which means his, uh, there was no resurrection, which means our faith was worthless. So you can understand the incredible importance to the answer to this question. There was a young man, he was in 10th grade, and he was assigned um, his very first research paper, which in the hearts and minds of most high school uh, students strikes fear. You know, you have to write a research paper, and you can't plagiarize. So, uh, so his idea was... Um, he came up with the idea, his teacher was an atheist, and he was a Christian. So he decided to write about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And at first, his teacher refused to let him write on that topic. Um, she didn't want the, the assignment to be religious in nature, um, so she wouldn't let him do it. And so she finally caved, and she said, okay, you can write this research paper with one uh, caveat, you cannot use the Bible to prove your points. So you have to find what she called real evidence of, what, uh, of the fact that Jesus died and rose from the dead. And if you don't, if you do not come up with real evidence, excluding biblical evidence, if you don't come up with real evidence, then she said you would not only fail the, uh, the paper, but because of the weight that she was giving the research project, you would fail the, he would fail the class as well. So there was a tremendous amount of pressure for him to choose any other topic and not have the same uh, kind of uh, ramifications uh, for this assignment. Well, then, he, so he was like, no, I'm doing it. So he began to research, and he came across lots of extra-biblical evidence for Christ's resurrection. And when we say extra-biblical, we mean outside of the Bible. There's clearly evidence in the Bible, but what he had to, what he had to discover was called extra-biblical, or evidence outside of the Bible. And so he ended up getting quite a lot of evidence, wrote his paper, and he got a, very, he got a pretty good grade on it. Um, now, again, the atheist in her is, is like, you know, gritting her teeth, but when she gave him feedback on the assignment, she said, maybe there's more to Christianity than just myths. It's incredibly important for Christians to know what they believe and why they believe it. I, I say to people um, when we get in like uh, conversations or, or Facebook groups and people want to debate different topics, 
And some people are like, you know, we're, we shouldn't be debating this. This is like a, this is a, an accepted thing. And I said, look, if you can't defend what you believe, you shouldn't believe it. So you need to know what you believe, and you need to be able to defend what you believe. Otherwise, there's no reason for you to actually hold that belief. You should, because if you can't defend it, then you, you're relying on blind faith. <clears throat> so every believer should confidently and competently be able to defend their beliefs. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the foundation to all of Christianity. Without it, the entire belief system crumbles. Um, as I said in uh, the Apostle Paul, he wrote it. It's 1 Corinthians 15, if you want to write that down. 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is without foundation, and so is your faith. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless because you're still in your sins. So this is the most critical issue for every believer to know, to understand, and be able to defend. So let's look at the main points for those people who hold to the fact that Jesus did rise from the dead. It's on your sheet. Main points, there's three of them. First, Jesus Christ died on the cross. He was buried, and he physically arose three days later. His literal resurrection proves that he is the Savior. The second point for those people that hold to the theory that Jesus did rise from the dead, uh, archaeological discoveries give us reason to accept the historical accuracy of the Bible. Therefore, we have reason to believe the testimonies of those who were eyewitnesses to the risen Christ. If the Bible is disproven, then it doesn't matter what the eyewitnesses said. But if the Bible is proven to be accurate, then you give weight and credence to the eyewitness testimonies. These people said they, they're writing down what they saw, and they're, they're saying it. And, and you have to remember that a lot of these people are saying it under, with the understanding that it, it will cost them their lives to say what they're saying. Uh, but they, they're never going to deny the truth of what they know to be true. The third thing is uh, the resurrection is central to Christianity. Without the resurrection, Christianity is false. Because his resurrection is historically documented, Christianity is established as valid. Now, what do people who do not hold to the position of the resurrection, uh, what do they say? The first thing is the disciples that claim to see Jesus alive after death may have been hallucinating. We might, we might know what really happened, or, or I'm sorry, it should say we might not know what really happened, but dead bodies don't come back to life. Second counterpoint is the disciples could have been a bunch of liars. They just made it up, and uneducated people would have believed their mythical stories. And number three, the resurrection story is just something Christians made up to make their beliefs appear greater than everybody else's. All three of those things are absolutely stupid. But that is what people some people hold. So we have five theories about what actually happened. The first theory is the theory that we hold to, that Jesus died plus Jesus rose, and that equals Christianity. Jesus died plus Jesus rose, that equals Christianity. That is what we believe. The Bible clearly teaches that position. 
It clearly teaches that Jesus died what's called a substitutionary death, meaning that he substituted himself for us. He took our place and he took the curse of sin upon himself so that we didn't have to. So he bore the punishment and the curse of sin so that we could be free. So he substituted himself for us, thereby it's called a substitutionary death. But he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. Who rose Jesus from the dead? Any guesses? Jesus said, no one takes my life, I lay it down. And if I lay it down, I have the power to take it back up again. So Jesus rose from the dead because he was God. He was able to take his own life back up. If he was not God, he would have needed the Father to bring him back from the dead. Lazarus, clearly not God, couldn't bring himself back from the dead. So how did Lazarus come back from the dead? Jesus brought him back from the dead. Why? Because Jesus is God, and he can do that. So when Jesus lays down his life, he doesn't need the Father to call him to bring him back from the dead. He is God. He laid his life down. He has the power to take it back up again. That's incredibly important. We also see that the Bible goes on to say that Jesus appeared to over 500 eyewitnesses after his resurrection. So in the Old Testament, I think I mentioned it, I mentioned it on Sunday when we were talking about the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. The Old Covenant requires a certain number of witnesses to validate something has taken place. Do you remember how many? Two to three. Two minimum, three is the max. That's all you need to establish something. Two to three witnesses to execute somebody for a capital offense, such as adultery, dishonoring your parents. That was a capital offense. How many of us would be alive today if that were carried out? Not this guy. Not most people. Um, these were capital offenses, and it took two to three witnesses. So if you're going to dishonor your parents, just make sure only one of your parents was around. Because if there's two of them, then you're toast. You're going to take you out back and stone you. Um, They probably didn't, but they could have. Um, But anyway, the point is that two to three witnesses is all the Old Testament required to establish that something had happened. And yet in Scripture, there were over 500 eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. So it was overwhelmingly established that he had risen from the dead. Um, The Old Testament had prophesied the resurrection of the Messiah. It's in Psalm 16. In the, the writer of the Psalm 16, it says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, which is the Hebrew word for hell. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. That's, that sentence makes no sense in the book of Psalms, but it makes perfect sense in the Messianic context where Jesus is the Holy One, that God will not abandon, his soul will not be abandoned to hell, even though he became sin, he was not abandoned to hell, and that God would not allow the Holy One, the Messiah, to see decay. So he was dead for three days, but he didn't decay, and he wasn't abandoned in hell. He, he uh, was raised from the dead. So this is the view that we hold. Jesus died, Jesus rose, that equals Christianity. So we're not going to spend too much time on it. Um, the Bible clearly declares this position. It defends this position throughout the New Testament. 
So let's look at the other two. Number two, Jesus died plus Jesus didn't rise. The apostles were deceived, and that means they were a hallucination. Hallucination. There we go. So Jesus died plus Jesus didn't rise. The apostles were deceived, which equals hallucination. Number three, and we'll, we'll actually go through these and we'll kind of come back to them. So number three, Jesus died plus Jesus didn't rise. The apostles were liars. So the third theory is conspiracy. Where's, where's Glenn Beck when you need him? What's that other guy? That other guy who shouts all the time and, and thinks that uh, there's a conspiracy behind everything. No, he's not on Fox. He's, he's one of those... You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, he, he, you know, anyway, all right, we're not going to get into that. This goes on the website. So, um, but there's, there are, there are people who see a conspiracy in everything. And I'm, I'm not saying that I've worked for the government, okay? So I'm not saying the government does everything the way they're supposed to do it. But there are some people that are like, um, there's a conspiracy behind every single thing the government does. And they're, you know, they're the FEMA camps and all this stuff. You all know what I'm talking about. So anyway, So the apostles were liars, and they created this conspiracy about the resurrection of Christ. Number four, Jesus died. Jesus didn't rise. The apostles were myth-makers, and that makes the resurrection story a myth. Makes the resurrection story a myth. The last one, Jesus did not die, which means it's called the swoon theory, that Jesus didn't actually die He passed out. We'll get into how ridiculous that is in a minute. But let's look at number two and number three, the hallucination theory and the conspiracy theory. Both of those theories present a very big problem. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then the apostles who taught that he did were either deceived if they thought he did rise, or they were deceivers if they knew that he had not risen from the dead. So they were either liars, they were either deceived, or they were liars. Uh, Blaise Pascal, the noted mathematician um, and also Christian, he said, imagine these 12 men meeting after Jesus' death and conspiring to say that he has risen from the dead. One of them had only to deny his story under imprisonment, tortures, and death, And they would have all been lost. Only one of them would have to deny um, that Jesus was risen from the dead. And he said, follow that out. Not one of them denied the resurrection story. Not one of them denied under torture, under imprisonment, under death. Not one of them denied the fact of the resurrection. To completely disprove these two theories, the hallucination and conspiracy theory, There is a historical fact that no one, not one single person ever confessed freely or under torture, under bribery, uh, under pressure, that the story of Jesus' resurrection was a fake, a fraud, a lie, or a deliberate deception. Not one person who was tortured for their faith. Even when people broke under torture, And when they denied Christ and worshipped Caesar, they never said that the conspiracy was a fraud. 
They never said the, I'm sorry, they never said the resurrection was a conspiracy or a fraud. Even though they may have broken and denied Christ and, and said, I'll worship Caesar, I, I'll, I'll, I reject Christ, I can't handle this torture, they never denied the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If they had known that it was a fake, if they had known the resurrection of Christ was a fraud, they would have never become Christians to begin with. Because to become a Christian in that day and age was to put a gigantic bullseye on your life. You could not hold business. You could not, you were persecuted everywhere. I mean, and again, these are mostly Jewish people. They are kicked out of their churches, their synagogues. They're ostracized by their community. They're disowned by their entire families. They have to go on the run, go into hiding. If it's not true, why in the world would you do that to yourself? So think about the possibility that the disciples knew Jesus was not resurrected, but made up the story for whatever reason. They still had to deal with the missing body. If they made up the story, why was the tomb empty? If, they, if, if the disciples had made up this story, then why was there an empty tomb? The religious leaders, if you read the gospel accounts towards the end of every single gospel that deals with the crucifixion, um, and the resurrection, the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, the religious leaders anticipated that someone would steal the body of Jesus and claim that he had risen from the dead. That's why they asked for guards at the tomb. Uh, that's why they asked for the tomb to be sealed. And so, and actually there were, for years I had totally uh, didn't notice that. When they, when they put the stone in place, they placed these large seals over the tomb at different places. And in order to do that, in order to, to uh, steal a body or to leave, the stone has to be rolled away. And when the stone gets rolled away, all the seals are broken, indicating the stone has been moved. And so they put those seals on there to show if anybody would have disturbed the tomb once the body was placed in the tomb. So they are anticipating something's going to happen. They're anticipating somebody's going to try to steal the body. Um, so to think that a group of... Let me back up for just a second. Remember, after Jesus died, the disciples are all huddled together in a room, and they're scared. They haven't left Jerusalem. They don't know what's happening, and so they're scared. All day Saturday, they're huddled together, freaked out. Some of them may go out, grab some food, come back in. Because obviously we know when Jesus first walked in the building, Thomas wasn't there. And, you know, of course, that whole conversation where he said, unless I see the nail prints and, and be able to put my finger in his nail prints, I won't believe. Like, you know, the one time, just one time the guy doubted. One time, and he's always been known as Doubting Thomas. Um, we've never let him forget it. Like one time he did something and that's it. I'm like, you're pegged. We've we pigeonholed you. You're now doubting Thomas. <clears throat> but, um, and the irony is none of them believed it. When the women came back and gave the report, none of them believed the women. So they were all doubting, but I digress. So to think that a group of scared fishermen and, and these disciples could overpower armed soldiers, break the seal on this massive stone in, in front of the tomb, rolled it away, and steal the body without anybody else noticing is completely ridiculous. 
Because afterwards, why did the religious leaders tell the Jewish guards at the tomb to say they'd fallen asleep when Jesus' body was allegedly stolen? When the soldiers get to the religious leaders and the religious leaders say, well, where's the body? Like, we don't know. It's not there. And they said, well, what happened? And they said, well, there was an earthquake and um, we were blinded and we fell down and paralyzed, you know, whatever. And so it freaked us out. And finally, we just took off running. And so the religious leaders told them, well, just tell everybody you fell asleep. Now, if you've ever served in the military, you understand that when you're on watch and you fall asleep on your watch, you will be punished severely. This was the death penalty for soldiers if they were to fall asleep on their watch. And to them, the Pharisees were saying, We'll take care of you. We'll protect you. It's better for you to say you fell asleep than for us to admit what we feel like we know as fact that Jesus has risen like he said that he would. So all of these things are the story plays out so that it clearly lends itself to the fact that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is legitimate. It's historically proven. All the religious leaders that tried to deny it couldn't deny it. The logic doesn't make sense. Now, if the disciples went to such great lengths to steal Jesus' body so that they could say that he did rise from the dead when he really didn't, it meant that the disciples knew that the resurrection was a lie. All right? If they went to great lengths to steal his body and to say he rose from the dead when he really didn't, they were lying. And they, they knew they would know that that was a lie. Why would they lie? You see, in, all, in the years of parenting and counseling and ministry, people lie to benefit themselves. People, I've never met anybody who lied because they knew that by lying it was going to make things worse for them. People avoid telling the truth because it'll make things worse for them. But children will lie because they think they can convince you they didn't do something and they can get out of punishment, right? People lie because they think it'll benefit them. No one lies because they know ahead of time this is actually going to make things worse. This is going to make my life horrible. So if the disciples know that it's a lie, why would they lie knowing what they know that is going to happen to them being punished by the religious leaders and all of this stuff? It makes them marked men. It makes them destined for persecution and death. They've just seen Jesus be crucified. The most horrific way to die, suffocating, and it can take days for a person to suffocate. The way they do it, without getting too graphic, they, they obviously, you understand, you get nailed to a cross, a nail goes through your feet, and in order to breathe, you have to push up on the nail that's on your, that, that's on your feet. So your feet are stacked on top of each other, a nail goes through the feet, and in order to breathe, you have to push off of the block that your feet rest upon, put and push up on that nail to catch a breath, and then you sink back down. Well, you sink back down pretty roughly because it, took a tremendous, it takes a tremendous amount of effort and creates a tremendous amount of pain to take one breath, which is why you don't really die from blood loss. You don't really die from the, nail, the nails in your hands and feet. You die from suffocation. And that's a horrible, miserable way to die. You eventually get so weak, you, obviously they're not giving you anything to eat, Um, They're not giving you anything to drink. You're dying of dehydration and suffocation. And people are watching. 
So it's a, it's a miserable way to die. And they've just witnessed Jesus die like that. So they can't, they can't legitimately say, we're going to make up this ridiculous story that Jesus rose from the dead and, and everything's, you know, every, we're going to be super popular. They just saw him die and they saw him die horribly. It makes no sense for them to lie if Jesus hasn't really risen from the dead. They can't possibly think that their fate would have been any better, more favorable than what Jesus just went through. So to believe that they knew that it was all a lie and to hold to that belief until their martyrdom, never once recanting of the fact that Jesus bodily rose from the dead, it makes no sense whatsoever. No rational person would ever die for something that they knew was a lie. Now, people die for things mistakenly, believing that something was true. But if they know that it's a lie, they're not going to lay down their life for it. Would you all agree with that? Would anybody in this room ever die for something they knew was a lie? I mean, I don't know anybody, unless you're psychotic. Um, you're not going to die for something you know is, is a complete lie. Hundreds, if not thousands of Christians in the first century who witnessed Jesus' healings, miracles, his death, his resurrection, went willingly to their deaths because they knew his resurrection was an indisputable fact. Now, they weren't saying, hey, kill me. They weren't suicidal. But when they were arrested and they were told, just deny Christ and you'll live. Just say he didn't rise from the dead. They couldn't do it because they had witnessed him walking around. As I said earlier, after he was raised, raised from the dead, over 500 witnesses. Uh, there were over 500 witnesses to his resurrection. He was walking around. He was talking to people. Um, so every one of these people, all they would have ever had to do to stop, being, to stop themselves from being martyred was to confess, it's a fraud. The disciples made it up. They're liars. It was a, they were hallucinating. They were deceived. They thought he rose from the dead, but he really didn't. Or that it was some conspiracy that, that we all kind of got together and decided, let's just say that he did rise from the dead. Even though, you know, and so somebody's got his body somewhere. <clears throat> Instead, every single person that was martyred uh, confessed that it was a fact that it was the truth, and they were willing to lay their lives down for that fact because they knew that it was not a lie. Theory number four, that the, that the um, disciples were myth-makers, that Jesus um, didn't, he died, he didn't rise, and that they created this myth, okay? It's all just this lovely and mythological, wonderful story, and people who adhere to this position say that the myth is neither literally true or literally false. Rather, it's spiritually and symbolically true. That it doesn't matter whether it literally happened. It matters more how it makes you feel. That is the biggest load of garbage I've ever heard. Facts matter. It doesn't matter how things make you feel if it's false. It doesn't matter how it makes you feel if something is not true. If something is true, that should make you feel good. If it's not true, it should make you feel not good. And the fact that these people say, well, it doesn't really matter. The truth does matter. It absolutely does matter. There are people, and I have friends who are religious leaders in other religions. Um, they're rabbis, and some of them say, this book, their, their 
what we call Old Testament, they call the Tanakh, the Old Testament, they say it's, it's not intended to be interpreted literally. It's an allegory. It's what lessons can you learn? What lessons can you apply? No, the Bible never presents itself as an allegory. The Bible presents itself as literal truth. It presents all of the biblical characters as on their good days and on their really bad days. And that's not allegorical. It's because it actually happened. So we have to take the Bible for what it says and interpret it literally everywhere we can interpret it literally. <clears throat> the, 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 uh, the resurrection story is, is uh, not some mythological story in order to teach us morals. What moral would it teach? It's a declaration that if their resurrection didn't happen, our faith is worthless. That's what Paul said, as I said at the beginning, 1 Corinthians 15. If the resurrection hasn't happened, my preaching is worthless, your faith is worthless, you're still in your sins. And that's a terrible situation to be in. <clears throat> so if, if it is a mythological concept, then what Paul says is true. Um, the problem with this theory, the mythological theory, is that so many statements in the Bible have been proven as true facts. There are battles. There are historical figures. There are biblical characters. There are significant moments in the Bible. And they all repeatedly find their place proven in history, proven in archaeology, proven outside of the Bible. Josephus is a Jewish historian. He was not a Christian. He had absolutely no reason to validate anything in the Bible because he is not a believer. And this Jewish historian recounted things that our Bible says, and he validated that they were true. So you've got these extra-biblical sources that are validating the Bible as a true source. If, if, it's, if it's true, it's not a myth. If it's proven to be true, it is not a myth. So theory five states that Jesus didn't really die, that he just passed out on the cross. Now again, remember what you know about this story. He's, he, first of all, before he even gets to the cross, he has been beaten within an inch of his life. He's lost so much blood that Isaiah 53, it talks about, by his stripes we are healed. That Hebrew word is actually the singular, not plural, because he was beaten so badly that his back was just one stripe. There was no flesh left. It wasn't a bunch of ribbons. It was one large stripe. The flesh was ripped off of him. And so he has taken this beating. Um, there are, um, he was beaten with reeds before he was beaten with the whip that is designed to rip the flesh off of you. It was, it was reserved for the worst of criminals. But again, and, and so the, the idea is that he, he was beaten excessively without the authorization of Pilate. He didn't intend for him to be beaten so severely. But if he had not been beaten that way, Isaiah 53, 5 would not have been fulfilled. And so prophecy had to be fulfilled. Jesus said uh, in Scripture, he said, Scripture cannot be broken. And so even the Scriptures about himself, the way he was going to die, the horrific death he would endure, cannot be broken. So he's beaten with reeds, he's beaten with the whip, he takes on the crown of thorns, he's lost an incredible amount of blood. Some people don't even survive the beating that, that he took, and yet now, 
from that point, he has lost a ton of blood. He has to carry his cross from that courtyard in Jerusalem all the way outside of the city. Uh, if you ever have the opportunity to do the Via Dolorosa, um, the, the way of suffering, it is the, the trip that Jesus most likely took out of the city to Golgotha where he was crucified. He was not crucified inside the city. He was crucified out of the city, which was a prophecy. Uh, the Passover lamb cannot be killed inside the city. It has to be killed outside the city. But so he carries the cross. He gets there, and they nail him to the cross, put him up there. Of course, again, he's suffocating. And just to make sure he's dead, when they realize he's dead, they go, and they've got to wrap this up because the Passover's coming. They've got to get the bodies off the cross, and they can't do that. That's considered work. So the Jews have to get the bodies off the cross so they can bury them. So they go to break the legs, and they break the legs of the thief on the right and on the left. And when they get to Jesus, he's not breathing. And they say, he's already dead. And the Roman centurion says, make sure. So they take the spear and thrust it up into his side. It breaks the, I think it's called the pericardial sac, which has got uh, blood and water in it. When they pull the spear out, shoots blood and water all over the place. He's not moving. They take him off the cross. He has been uh, just, if you, the word we have excruciating is excrux, and that's, uh, from the cross. So when our word excruciation is actually a derivative of a reference to dying on the cross. Um, and so Jesus is wrapped up very tightly um, to you know, preserve his body and to pres- uh, prevent smell, placed in the tomb. Not one person in this whole process says, I think he's breathing. I think he's faking. I saw him move. He twitched. His finger moved. He said something. No, not one person. They put him in the tomb, roll the stone, put the seals around it, put the soldiers at the end of the tomb. He's lost so much blood. He's been so severely wounded. It's a miracle that he actually made it all the way to Golgotha, carrying the cross, not a, not a light piece of wood. It wasn't, it wasn't particle board. It was legit, and it was big. And so he carries that. So he has lost a ton of blood, ton of energy. He hasn't eaten. Um, he's dehydrated. He said on the cross, I thirst. And they stuck a sponge with vinegar. Like, you could have kept that for yourself. That did the opposite of quenching his thirst. Um, and so, uh, but their idea is he was just, he had just passed out. No, no, you can't pass out. That kills you. That absolutely killed him. He died, and there is no doubt about it. And so the idea that Jesus was just um, faking it or he passed out, but then he revived in the tomb, he still has to roll away the stone, the stone that has been sealed. He's still got to get past all the soldiers outside outside of the tomb. He's got to sneak past them. He's got to hobble in. I mean, he has been beaten to death. And then he supposedly hobbles into the upper room to present himself to the disciples. What did the disciples say that they saw when they saw Jesus? He walked through the wall. He didn't look like he was in pain. He wasn't hunched over. He wasn't still bleeding, which he clearly would have been had he taken the beating and just passed out and then revived. Do you understand how ridiculous that theory is? I mean, am I painting a good enough picture for you? That theory is absolutely ridiculous. <clears throat> somehow he's, 
He's, he just needed a day and a half, two days in the tomb to recover from his wounds. And then he's just, you know, trucking on down the road. Hi, guys, I feel much better. That was tis but a scratch. You know, nothing but a flesh wound. Like, clearly not, because most people didn't even make it to the cross. They were dead by the time they, the beating was over. Okay, sorry. Clearly, I, I thoroughly disagree with that theory. So we ask the question, why does it matter and why should we believe in the literal resurrection of Jesus Christ? There's a guy named Josh McDowell. He was a former atheist. He investigated the claims of Christ. As he was investigating the claims of Christ, he discovered them to be true and accepted Christ. And this is what he wrote. He said, because the New Testament provides the primary historical source for information on the resurrection, Many critics during the 19th century attacked the reliability of these biblical documents. But by the end of the 19th century, archaeological discoveries had confirmed the accuracy of the New Testament manuscripts. Another guy, super smart dude, he's a theologian at Princeton University. This is what he said. He said that not believing in Jesus' resurrection might be warranted if you were just talking about a first century man that was pretty much unknown but allegedly rose from the dead. It would be difficult to disprove that. The thing is, it wasn't just an ordinary man. It wasn't just an unknown person. It was Jesus of whom we know a great deal because of the Gospels. When the extraordinary testimony of the resurrection comes to us, we add to that all of the things that we know about the prophesied Messiah and about Jesus himself. And then he said, We accept this strange belief that comes to us and fills us with joy that the Redeemer triumphed over death and the grave and sin. There are lots of other factual and evidential reasons to believe in the resurrection. Burial in tombs were hewn out of solid stone. That was a common fact in Jesus' day during Jerusalem. And if you go to Israel, you can still see a lot of them. You can even actually go to the tomb that they believe Jesus was buried in. Spoiler alert, there's no body there. Jesus was buried in the tomb of a member of the Sanhedrin. In accordance with prophecy, Isaiah 53, 9, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man at his death. That member of the Sanhedrin was specifically named Joseph of Arimathea. These are historical details that can be verified by people at that time, during that generation. And this historical detail is important because the hostility of the Jews, because of that, it's unlikely that they would just make up a name. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, 3-5, it also reveals that the teaching of Jesus' resurrection was very important. It was part of the early creed of the early church. It was evidence for the Apostle Paul when he said there were multiple eyewitnesses, 500 eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In a a sermon preached in the chapel at Princeton Seminary in the early part of the 20th century, there's a guy, his name is Benjamin B. Warfield. He said, this is what he said, people today do not need the resurrection to believe in Christ's love. After all, he died for everyone. One could even believe in his triumph over evil. But with the resurrection, we have the assurance that Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth, whose right it is to rule and whose hands we are gathered in whose hands are gathered the reins of the universe. Had he not risen, 
Could we believe him enthroned in heaven, the Lord of all? Himself subject to death, himself the helpless prisoner of the grave, does he differ in kind from that endless procession of slaves of death journeying like him through the world to the one inevitable end? Basically meaning, if he didn't didn't rise from the dead, he's no different than any of us. Fundamental to the Christianity is the fact that Jesus should be Lord of all. And Warfield said, it is essential that everything be subject to him, including death. This last enemy, death, he must need to put it under his feet. And it is because he has put this last enemy under his feet that we can say with such energy of conviction that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, not even death itself, and, not, and that nothing can harm us and nothing can take away our peace. In other words, without Jesus' resurrection, no one has any assurance that Jesus Christ is Lord of all things, including death and the grave. But with the knowledge that he has triumphed, even over those, believers have assurance of his sovereignty. Now, there's a gentleman, his name is John MacArthur. I don't quote John MacArthur very often because John MacArthur has very different views on a lot of things than I do and the Assemblies of God does and a lot of churches. John MacArthur is a cessationist. He believes that all the spiritual gifts stopped at the end of the apostolic age, and he also believes that women should keep their mouths shut. So all, you know, over 50% of this congregation is ladies right now, so you can all dislike John MacArthur with me. But John MacArthur said at least one thing I do agree with, and this is what he said. All gospel realities hinge on his resurrection, and your eternity is at stake. This is why the matter of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is of absolutely utmost importance to us. We need to not only know it, believe it, but be able to adequately defend it from these number two, three, four, and five theories. Jesus died is a historical fact. Jesus rose is also a historical fact, and that is is why we believe in Christianity and why we do not believe that the disciples made it up. They were deceived, they were deceivers, they were myth-makers, or that Jesus never even died at all. All right, would you stand with us this evening? We'll close in prayer. We're glad that you were here. We hope that uh, it was an encouragement to you. And, and uh, <clears throat> you know, for us, we, we thoroughly believe Jesus Christ was who the Bible reveals that he was. And that means that he literally died, he literally rose, he literally ascended. The scripture repeatedly makes that case. And so that means that our faith is not worthless. Our faith is worth something more precious. It was worth something so precious that thousands of people have laid down their lives for it. And uh, so we need to have it resolved in our own hearts and in our own minds that Jesus uh, did what the scripture says he did. Father, we thank you that we can... uh, read scripture. We thank you that the word of God can come alive and speak to us. We thank you, Lord, that it mean, it makes a difference. That it's not some ancient book that doesn't mean anything. It's not some ancient book that, that sits on the shelf that has great stories or, or good moral teachings. We thank you, Lord, that this word of God makes a tremendous difference. It's living and active It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces our hearts. It reveals our motives, and it helps us become more and more like Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we pray that we, as we encounter other people who are hurting, when we encounter people who are broken, when we encounter people who are seeking, um, they're curious, 
Uh, Lord, we pray that you would help us have the answers that in that moment, uh, maybe we don't have the whole, we've, you know, maybe there may be some people who haven't read the whole Bible. They, they certainly don't have the whole thing memorized or anything like that. But we trust that in that moment, you can call things to remembrance so that we can share the love, the grace of God, and we can share with them truth that will make a difference. And Lord, let us always remember, as we say every week, that uh, help us keep the mentality that an argument to be won is not more important than a person to be loved. That the priority for us is loving our neighbor and loving them. And in that moment where we share the truth, uh, it, it may not be time for them. These may just see, be seeds that are planted. But, Lord, we trust that as we plant these seeds, one day there will be a harvest and we are, we are sharing the love of Christ with people because we love them and because we know you love them. So help us, Lord. Put us in the path of people that need prayer, that need encouragement, that need this truth. We love you, Lord. We pray for a great day on Sunday as we come together as a church family and celebrate you and worship you and exalt your name and study the word of God together. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.